Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, a podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I speak with three representatives of world-leading organisations when it comes to tackling child poverty. David Stewart is Chief of Child Poverty and Social Protection at UNICEF headquarters in New York. Joan Yanyuki is Executive Director of the African Child Policy Forum in Addis Ababa. And Yolanda Wright is Global Director for Poverty Reduction, Climate Resilience, Gender Equality and Inclusion at Save the Children International. Together we speak about child poverty, what it is, how it affects children and families and how we can tackle it. So, Joan, David, Yolanda, thank you very much for joining the podcast and for this conversation about child poverty and why poverty for children is so devastating and needs urgent attention. And also to hear some of your suggestions for policies and efforts that uh, can try and tackle child poverty. So the first question I wanted to put to you is why poverty is so devastating for children specifically? Why should there be a specific focus on children when we talk about poverty? David, would you like to kick off? I I think the issue of child poverty is so pressing because children are at such a vulnerable life stage of development. And that's really true throughout their, their life cycle up into the age of 18. There's a lot of movement in and out of poverty. We know that as incomes rise and fall. But for children, if you dip into poverty, even temporarily, it can have devastating and lifetime impacts. You know, you don't get a second chance at an education or nutrition or a healthy start in life. And if you don't have those opportunities in childhood, they really can last for your entire lifetime with implications. then not only for you, but future generations and economies and societies as a whole. So really, it's an incredibly vulnerable period of life and, and one which if you fall into poverty, it can be very hard to come out. Thank you, David. I imagine there's also an issue here of children experiencing poverty in different ways than, than adults do. Yolanda, did you want to speak to this point? I think it is very interesting, actually, because we work with children all around the world in in a very wide range of different countries. But we see some really interesting common threads when we talk to children about the experience of living in poverty. And one of them is things like the stigma of living in poverty that applies wherever you are, whether you are living in the UK as I am or uh, growing up in Kenya or growing up in Bangladesh, that children very acutely feel conscious of their own status in the community. And often that stigma can affect their life outcomes because they, you know, they can feel less confident in the classroom so even if they may be receiving the same educational opportunities as other children they may not be able to sort of grasp those opportunities in the same way so there's a very strong mental and psychological element to poverty that we see as really common across children and wherever they live and then there's also as as David mentioned you know the other more biological things like the need to have a good healthy nutrition in the first thousand days which is so critical to brain development physical development etc but one of the things I find quite interesting is that common thread on how how children feel about growing up in a lower income household compared to other others around them. Absolutely. Joan, ACPF has their annual report on on child well-being for children in Africa 
Are there specific issues that you think are more prominent for children in Africa to keep in mind when talking about child poverty or things that you as ACPF focus on when thinking about what child poverty means and how it can be moved into child well-being? Yes. So we have found that there's a multiplier effect that poverty has on other, on other risk factors. And in the African context, when we look at different countries with regards to child well-being, we find that where there are multiple risk factors, such as um, political conflict, where there is more violence, where there have been um, environmental disasters, we find that poverty always magnifies the impact of these already devastating um, factors on a child. And just to echo, some of the sentiments that have been shared already. When um, a child faces poverty, it, it handicaps the ability therefore not only to learn in terms of the cognitive ability, but more so it even interferes with their access, for instance, to educational, um, educational facilities. They get low quality education. They have larger absences from school. And these are the children in our African context who you find spending very few years in school they rarely complete their basic primary education. Transition rates have been found to be very low. And ultimately, it means that their lifetime probability of a decent income, decent jobs and wages are, are low. And immediately in childhood, they end up being child laborers, being forced into very um, difficult forms of child labor, which are also very prevalent in our African context. Thank you. Yeah, so clearly very important to tackle poverty early on in life because of the many adverse consequences that children have to deal with throughout life as they grow up. Now, unfortunately, we find ourselves in a time of, of a global pandemic and a year in almost, there's been quite a lot of research already on how it affects children, including by all of you, um, as in UNICEF, Safer Children and ACPF. Would you be able to say something about the findings of the work that you've done in terms of how COVID-19 has impacted children and particularly in relation to poverty? Um, I want to mention two key findings that SCPF identified in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on child poverty. And one was, of course, there was increasing poverty, but this then affected two things. One, it affected in terms for girls in particular, the number of girls who are forced into marriages. We have seen child marriages have gone up. And of course, this is compounded by the fact that a lot of children living in poverty have not been able to access out of school learning. There has been no um, virtual learning, learning through other forms of media, such as radio or television, which children who are in better households, better higher income households would have a television set, would have a radio at home, and therefore would be able to access out of school learning during the pandemic. That did not happen. And therefore these children have obviously fallen back. But looking at girls in particular, the issue of child marriage, once a girl is married at 14 years, at 16 years, below 18 really, then really the cost of her life is permanently and irreversibly changed. So those are the two biggest factors that ACPF identified for all children in general, but specifically for girls. Right, some real gendered impacts of the pandemic on girls in this case. David, how about some of the work that UNICEF has done in, in this regard? I very much agree with the analysis of, of ACPF and the impacts on, on girls and, and particularly the inequalities which are exacerbated as a result of COVID, um, where it's those who are furthest left behind who are going to be struggling the most. I, I think the one other thing I would stress is that it's important to, to remember 
what a precarious position many children came into this pandemic in. So we entered the pandemic with children twice as likely to be living in, in poverty as, as adults and getting up to a billion children are living under uh, $3.20 a day. So we were really, really significant challenges. And what COVID has done is really exacerbated and accelerated that. So for the first time in, in decades, we're seeing poverty rates rise and with an additional 150 million children falling into income poverty uh, and about the same 150 million estimated to be falling into multidimensional poverty. So really it's a story of scale. I mean, just the scale of the challenge is, which was already daunting, is getting more daunting. Uh, and I think we face some real concerns for the future as already the challenge of achieving the, the SDGs of, of eliminating extreme poverty and, and halving poverty, child poverty by national definitions was challenging. We now know the, the scale has got bigger and the, the budgets and the fiscal space is, is seemingly going to be increasingly constrained as growth falters. So it's a very, very challenging period, not just now, but as we foresee the coming years. Right. And Yolanda, I know Save the Children has also done work to model some of the impact of the pandemic on rates of poverty among children, but also other work understanding children's experiences. What have you learned from the work that you've done? I think um, our surveys and, and our work with communities really echoes what my colleagues have said. Uh, we spoke to, through remote surveys, over 13,000 children across 47 countries. And a lot of these themes came up. For lower income families, they don't have the digital access, mobile phones or even radio sometimes to do remote learning. So we were really surprised by how many children felt they were really learning almost nothing um, from home. So that, that gap in educational attainment is going to really grow for the, for the children in the lowest income households. We also heard really worryingly and saw really clear correlation between households that lost the most income, which was often actually um, in urban, not just in rural areas, where we saw the biggest drops in income. We saw also the largest increase in experiences of domestic violence, um, either violence against children or violence between their adult carers. And that's an incredibly worrying thing because where children would normally have outlets of other trusted adults to talk to through school, for example, um, when schools have been closed, there are sort of opportunities to reach out and get um, support during difficult times or when they're experiencing concerns around protection have been really cut off. So we've seen a really wide range of issues. And that does link to the point that Joan made about um, early marriage. We know that millions of children will not be returning to school when schools open because they've been needed to, to support the family through child labor, or perhaps they have been married. And we have seen that um, rates of child marriage really are increasing as, as girls are out of school, unlikely to return to school. And as, as Joan was saying, that really does change um, the trajectory of a child's life. So we've been quite worried about these many different interconnected issues that sort of stem from the worsening inequality as a result of COVID. Thank you. Yes, this really speaks to the multidimensional crisis of COVID-19 and more so for children than I think for anyone else in the population and particularly for those who are already um, marginalized and disadvantaged. And it's disheartening to hear that you also all think that this will have real long-term effects, whether that's because of the economic consequences or the more social consequences in terms of loss of education, increase of violence and other child protection issues. 
So on that note, and also keeping in mind that children were already at a higher risk of poverty even before the pandemic hit, do you think that countries do enough to prioritize child poverty, to track it, to monitor it, to then be able to design and implement policies that are really geared towards improving children's lives? Well, I think the short answer to that is probably no. We, just as the SDGs were being started, UNICEF, we did a survey of 160 countries to see who was measuring child poverty. And we found that about 90 were measuring it in some form. So that wasn't necessarily official measures by government, but there was some measurement happening. And with the SDGs, which really committed countries to routinely measuring monetary and multidimensional child poverty, we really felt like this would be a watershed in increasing the focus. And of course, you need to be measuring routinely child poverty and have that be led by governments as a sort of foundation of understanding what's going on and what the policy responses should be. Um, but the Global Coalition to End Child Poverty has been doing reviews of voluntary national report, which is the process by which countries are reporting on the SDGs. And we looked at 156 countries that did uh, these VNRs. And of those, 134 looked at monetary poverty. Only 46 looked at monetary child poverty. And only 22 looked at multidimensional child poverty. So there are really significant gaps in this reporting. Now, it may be that there is some monitoring going on, which isn't being reported in the reviews, but it does show that the issue isn't being prioritized. And I think one thing which is a vital foundation is to reach the point where it's just normal and routine that we're reporting on a frequent basis what's happening with child poverty in every country in the world. It's perfectly doable, but we really need to push forward to make sure that that happens. Very clear. So the need to have more routine tracking of child poverty at national and I imagine also subnational levels. Joan, what happens in Africa in relation to tracking child poverty and also keeping governments to account? I would say that in terms of the voluntary national reports, we have seen some effort. We have seen good effort from African countries and looking at those who um, submitted their reports in 20. Um, 2019 and 2020, there was at least um, 23 to 27 countries in each of these years that were from Africa. But I think the key gap is the, the focus of countries on broader issues and not specifically on um, the child-focused SDGs and not specifically on um, indicators that would then show us where they are in terms of addressing child poverty more specifically. And, and so we find that there has been more focus on targets that are not specific that do not specifically benefit children other than those that benefit children so for instance if we look at the sdg on climate action there has been better performance on that but if we look at the sdgs that really look at good health and well-being then there are fewer countries reporting on those so that is a major concern um, the other element that we find difficult in terms of monitoring um, in african governments is just availability of data you know, and data that is up to date, that is um, desegregated for children, inclusive of all children. And when we say inclusive of all children, especially those children who are, you know, at the margins and are likely to fall into extreme forms of poverty, whether it is um, children living in rural areas, children who are displaced either as refugees or internal, um, internally displaced children, we find that data oftentimes will not reflect the situation of those children. And it is those children who we really need to know most importantly what is happening to them. And so that's one area where the African countries can step up. 
Thank you. Yes. And a very important point about even if there is monitoring of child poverty on a regular basis, the data sources available are such that the most vulnerable children and families are often left out of those data collection uh, and monitoring exercises. Yolanda, what, what kind of experiences within Save the Children are there around monitoring child poverty and again also pushing governments to keep track of what they're doing in relation to child poverty? I think my colleagues have made some fantastic points and I think one of our main grounding points to Save the Children is that practically every country in the world has signed up to the Convention on the Rights of the Child and has acknowledged the responsibility to provide children with a good start in life, you know, minimum food to eat, shelter, education and well-being, etc. So because of that commitment, there is at least something to hold on to. You know, there is something that, that countries have said they, they sign up to. So we try to encourage governments to as part of that commitment to then really do exactly what um, David was saying, that if you want every child to count, you, you need to kind of count every child and figure out how you are really ensuring that every child matters. So that links into kind of the next areas we might start talking about is what policies and what government commitments can help to start encouraging that kind of citizen state contract where people trust the government to support them in bringing up their children to be the, the best they can be and that the government was also committed to supporting every parent to do that or every caregiver to do that. So I think that we're trying to create that virtuous circle ultimately um, where the commitments to the rights of children are really met. Absolutely and that's a nice segue indeed into the next question which is about well what should the priorities be as all three of you have highlighted the scale of the challenges is enormous, especially now, and it covers many areas of children's and families' lives. So how to prioritize what needs to be done first, and also what policies to push for with governments, but also non-governmental actors and international agencies in improving children's lives. How, how do you personally and within your organizations make that prioritization, and what do you push for? Well, I think there's not one sort of silver bullet, unfortunately. There never is to life's complex problems. But I think it starts with a commitment and a, and a sort of national or subnational level commitment to, to really doing something about child poverty, I think. And, you know, working really strongly with local civil society movements is one of the most important things that we can do because, you know, building that kind of the voice. And, and listening to children and then empowering them to raise their own concerns is really, really important and foundational thing and, and part of what we try to do. Once you have that kind of level of commitment and vision, then there are huge numbers of policy options that you can look at uh, that are very familiar probably to everybody listening. But we tend to kind of like the rights-based approach where we focus on trying to ensure that every child has the right to some of those basic things like education, basic health services, but I think one interesting area we may want to talk about more detail is also the basic right to sort of a, a minimum income. And we have just recently brought out a publication about universal child benefits, which is like a, a sort of grant to provide families that have children with some or caregivers of children with some income, income supplement to help to cover the cost of providing children with that fully rounded start in life. So the cost of a, a fully nutritious diet or help with the costs of getting children to school, etc. And we do think that's an underprovided area. Um, it's well known that sort of social protection is underfunded compared to other 
areas of, of government policy. And we think it could be a really important foundation because we see how low income affects children's access to all the other things that they need and could be a really transformative type of support that could actually unlock many of the other things that children need. Yeah, very clear. And David, UNICEF has also worked on universal child grants and promoted universal child benefits. Do you want to speak to that further as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to say while we are at sort of daunting moment, we have a choice. I mean, child poverty is something which is amenable to policy. It can be changed and we know what the levers are. So as Yolanda said, it's very much about this prioritization and, and, and putting children first and, and taking this moment, which I think COVID has, has been an awakening in many ways of the situation of, of many of the world's poorest children and the vulnerability that children and families face to reset and to start talking about what a different social contract would look like, which would be right for children and right for the future of societies. And at UNICEF, we, we too have done a lot of work on universal child benefits, and we think it could be a really important platform. Um, we know cash transfers make a huge difference in the lives of children and families. They uh, improve access to education, to health, and they improve food security. So it's a straightforward approach that can make a real difference. But children are really, really undercovered. Um, two out of three children have no access at all globally, with the numbers much lower in the in the poorest parts of the world. By so by really expanding the access to cash transfers, it could make a really profound difference. But also important to stress that it isn't a silver bullet. It's a very important foundation. But increasing the income security of children and families needs to be part of a system of services which includes quality education, quality health care, access to social workers when children and families need it. So we do need this package. Um, but many countries have gone through increasing and changing the way they, they look at their social services and their social sector. And this is something that we need to take this moment to really, really push forward on, I think. Yes, crisis as an opportunity, in a sense, to take this moment and, and move forward with some of the many developments that were already in place in many countries in terms of social protection, but also making social services better quality and, and more accessible to many more people. Joan, what has ACPF been focusing on in light of COVID, but also before COVID-19, in terms of policies to improve children's lives? I want to refer to our most recent Africa report on the 2020 edition. And there we highlighted just um, the element of public spending and how every increase, you know, whether in kwacha, in dollars, in shillings, invested in children has a much greater impact in terms of not just the development of the child, but also in enabling them to access essential services um, and social protection. And so one of the things that ACPF has been trying to do is keep an eye and monitor exactly what percentage of GDP are African countries spending on services that benefit children. So for instance, is there a progressive increase in this? Because we do acknowledge that um, a lot of African countries are facing um, limitations in terms of access to financial resources, but even those that have growing economies, are we seeing a similar proportionate growth in investment in education, for instance, in investment in health programs that benefit children in social protection. So that's one element that we've looked at. And our report last year in 2020 actually found two things. It found that one, there was stagnation in investment in um, sectors that benefit children directly. And second, it found that there is no direct correlation between growth in um, 
a country's GDP with increase in investment in child benefiting sectors. So we did have countries whose economic growth was much slower, but their investment in children was much higher. And so I come to the point that Yolanda mentioned that the leadership, the commitment that is actually demonstrated by um, decision makers in putting children at the top of um, the economic planning and resource allocation agenda is important. And that's one of the um, when we speak to national governments as ACPF, that's one of the things that we keep on asking, what percentage of your resources are actually going to benefit children? So those are the elements that we look at largely. Very interesting and very clearly a call for prioritizing children. So even if resources are increased, there is no guarantee that this will automatically benefit children as well as their mm -hmm. families. We've almost run out of time, but before we all sign off, I'd like to ask you if there's anything else that you'd like to add um, in terms of how to tackle child poverty and whether you wouldn't say anything about the Global Coalition to End Child Poverty. Well, it's great to have an opportunity to, to mention the, the Global Coalition, of which we are, we're all members. So we are a collective of around 20 different organisations, um, all working together in this um, struggle to, to address and ultimately end child poverty. You definitely have a look at our website, sign up to our newsletter, and you can get a sense of some of the work we're doing. Because really, I think one thing that's clear is that this is really a, a collective effort and a, and a big effort. And so the more that we can join together, learn from each other, coordinate what we're doing, speak together with a louder voice, I think the better we're going to be able to do in, in, in trying to provide the support that's needed to try and shift the policy agenda in favour of children. Thank you, David, for that call and prompt for the Global Coalition. Joan and Yolanda, any last words from you? Yes, my last words would be that really child poverty is one of those areas that we have to invest all sectors, across sectors, um, from health, education, economic policies, all actors really have to come together in a unified, collaborative approach to, to address poverty, but also its underlying and driving factors, but also the intergenerational cycles. And this is particularly important for Africa, because if you look at our population pyramid, unless Africa really invests in children, we are either going to have a burden in terms of um, a population that is um, not able to take care of itself, or we have an opportunity to really reap the economic dividend of investing in our children here and now with urgency. Thank you, Joan. Yolanda, final words. One thing I want to say is I think working in coalitions internationally, at national level and at local level is so important because one of the most important things is to really uphold this commitment that we've made that that children don't have to do or be anything to deserve their basic rights and a good start in life and investing in children really will reap the rewards because you know children it's such a cliche but children are the future of, of our world and one of the things I'm really conscious of now is we're going through this COVID crisis right now but we're also going through a climate crisis and children are going to be inheriting a very different world um, and having to cope with quite significant problems as a result of the climate crisis even if we do everything we can now there's certain sort of climate changes built in so I feel that there's real urgency from my side in looking at what COVID has done to already disadvantage many children and, and fearing what the climate crisis might do and thinking we need to invest in children now so that they have 
all the capability they possibly can have, physically healthy, good education, protected, um, so that when they face this quite uncertain future, they have the best possible chance to take forward, you know, society that the societies they live in. So I feel there is great opportunity at this point in time to do the right thing. And I think there's a, a really strong moral obligation to do everything we can to give children the best possible start in life. Thank you, Yolanda, for pointing out the urgency, but also really the moral need for all of us to be engaged with this issue. So I want to thank all three of you for your insights that I think really useful for our listeners in terms of understanding child poverty, what the main issues are, and also what can be done to move forward more positively towards a better and brighter future. So thank you all for your time. Thank you, Katie, for bringing us together. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again next time.